head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed for Euphoria Season 2, Episode 3. Title of the episode is Ruminations, colon, Big and Little Bullies. I'm Joanna Robinson, and uh, joining me, even though she will not audition for my production of Oklahoma... Is Nora Princiati. Hello, Nora. How are you? Hi, Joanna. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in Oklahoma. Come on. M- my production is going to be really innovative. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are here to talk about an episode of Euphoria that we really, really liked. Uh, this is a, a great episode of television, and we have a lot to say about it. Is that, is that what you would say, Nora? I think this is my favorite episode of this show that I've ever seen. And I am a sucker for a meta narrative, and maybe that's why. But I just thought that there was, except in a couple spots where it was heart-wrenching and and gut-wrenching, there was a lightness to this episode that I've absolutely been sort of longing for. Um, And it was smart and emotional, but just silly in a lot of places, which is a button that they press from time to time really well. And it was awesome to see them do it a little bit more. Before we get into breaking down the episode itself, um, we got a lot of feedback. Last week, I mentioned that I got some like a few questions in my Instagram DMs. And because I said that, I got a, a an avalanche of questions in my Instagram DMs. And so I'm just going to lean into it. Please DM me on Instagram, which feels like maybe a Euphoria-esque uh, way to reach me. Uh, if you have anything you want to ask or say about the show, um, you can also tweet at me. Unfortunately, we don't have an email that you can send to, but we've got like some questions, comments, concerns from listeners, and I thought we'd start with those. So let me start off with uh, this comment from Amanda about last week's episode. Amanda says, curious about the Maddie-Jules relationship. They seem to be really close friends in episode two, but did Maddie watch the tapes, the tape of Jules and Cal? How could Maddie be so normal around Jules if she saw that? Um, my take on that is that Maddie is the kind of person who would not blame the teenager in that video. Not that anyone actually needs blame, but I think she would reserve her judgment for the adult in that video and not the teen. I don't know. What do you think? I think Maddie is, is good and thoughtful in the way that you just described. And I also think that Maddie is out for Maddie enough that she's not wasting that ammo on just checking in if someone's okay, you know? Yeah. She's not wasting that that ammo to give her friend a pat on the back. And that's the Maddie we know. That's the Maddie we sometimes love, sometimes are frustrated by. I, I also think that it's a really valid question, though, in the sense that this to me is a loose end that I'm okay with because I'm expecting it to be tied up. Yeah. At some point. Yeah, especially since we saw in episode two, Nate, you know, the whole sequence of Nate looking for the video and stuff like that. So, all right. And then about Fez's age, this is like a concern we we brought up uh, in last week's episode. Uh, we got a couple responses. Spencer pointed out that um, Angus Cloud, who plays Fez, 
is younger than the actress who plays Mon Apatow. And then Marlene wrote and said, the show is definitely retconned Fez's age this season. In season one, I think it was assumed that he was in his early 20s. And Nate later says that Fez is a 20-year-old dropout. But this year, while promoting season two, Angus Cloud said in an interview that Fez is only a year older than the main characters. So maybe he's 18 or 19. They confirmed it this episode, uh, in episode two, when Rue says in her voiceover that Lexi had never been asked questions about herself by someone her age. I still understand the concern, but in a show where we see high school students licking fentanyl off knives and doing cam girl dominatrix work, a slight age gap is the least of my concern when it comes to these kids. So I don't think that you and I were that wound up about it, but I do think it's interesting that they've decided to slightly uh, age down Fez. I'm not mad about it at all. Um, Any thoughts? About Fez's I just age. also don't think that Nate necessarily would know exactly. Like Nate's not going to Fez's birthday party, you know. Like I'm, Nate being off by a year doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. I am a hundred percent with Marlene on a slight age gap between <laughs> Lexi and Fez is not my concern. Yeah, please keep Nate far away from any and all Fez parties. Uh, That would be my preference. Um, Emily wrote in to say, if Tom Holland were to get the Euphoria cameo he's been begging for, what type of character would you want him to play? What would his vice be? I would die if he made any sort of appearance, but it's hard to feel like he wouldn't obviously stand out. Um, This is where I get to talk about the film Cherry uh, that Tom Holland did. I feel like that was his Euphoria audition, but um, what would you want to see from Tom Holland and Euphoria, Nora? I would like him to be a responsible, good student who does his homework and loves his mother and maybe is a member of the chess club. I think it'd be great if he like hated Rue. If Rue was somehow his nemesis, a real acting challenge for Tom Holland. Um, our producer Steve weighed in to say boo when I mentioned Cherry. Not a great film. Don't recommend even to the diehard Tom Holland fans. Um Someone who wished to remain anonymous uh, wrote in, you wanted some opinions from, I thought this was really interesting. You wanted some opinions from actual high school students. And my friends and I were actually talking about your podcast and Euphoria today. We are juniors and we agreed that Euphoria is actually pretty accurate, maybe just a little exaggerated about high school. But we also talked about how no other show captures the general mood of our generation while also becoming an aesthetic that we try to match. Also, it comes out, it came out during the pandemic when we were freshmen. So a lot of our perception of what high school looks like actually comes from the show. Also, on the music front, the most unrealistic part is that Maddie and Cassie haven't had a scene together singing to Taylor Swift. So um, I hadn't even thought about that, that Euphoria was sort of, because these kids are watching it while not being in school for the most part, that Euphoria is something that they're sort of modeling um, an idea of what school might be. And there's nothing new about that, you know, like... For kids who watched now to an O or even though C, like there were always these sort of heightened ideas of what high school might be via these teen dramas. Um, but you at least could compare and contrast your everyday experience in the hallways. But this idea that like you're watching this while doing high school from home and you're watching Euphoria, I think that's kind of fascinating. What do you think? The aesthetic is definitely the thing that seems the most typifiably Gen Z about euphoria i mean i hope the (laughs) i hope it's exaggerated right like i hope these are not everyday events for for our youth um but the mood is a really good point because i think there's a real um there's a real sense of anxiousness that the show has that i think particularly for an age group that is like doing like has been doing school from home and, and just living through a really anxiety inducing time that I think it matches really perfectly. And yes, they should. I mean, again, like the sort of Taylor Swift earnestness doesn't fit that aesthetic, but they can figure it out. I don't know, obviously a ton uh, about Gen Z. So I'm, I'm happy to hear from any and all Gen Z listeners that this is not the case. 
But when I compare the way that Gen Z talks about like mental health and anxiety and that they know the word serotonin and all this sort of stuff in the way that I never did when I was a teenager. So their awareness of mental health, their awareness of anxiety and that idea of disassociating, whether it is through drugs or whether it is through just like social media, scrolling through TikTok, whatever it is, like that's a way to disassociate. I think that's something that is uh, a particular preoccupation um, with this generation. And I think that's kind of an interesting one-to-one for the show. Um, And then Kaylee Ronan said something weird brewing between Maddie and Minka, Minka Kelly being the the woman that uh, the character Maddie is babysitting for. Can't tell if their scene was tinted by sexual tension on Minka's part, or I'm just traumatized by this show. Kaylee, I picked up the exact same vibes. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a unzip my dress scene. So I don't know that those are ever like free from sexual tension. Did you, did you get any of those vibes, Nora? So I I think the vibe is like the lust of Maddie visualizing what she wants her life to look like. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know that it was distinctly sexual tension, but there's a real, there's a real wanting that I think creates that, that feeling. I think if there's any sort of off vibe for me, it was coming off of Minka's character and we'll see, we'll see if that, comes back. I hope that's not the last we saw of Minka. I mean, uh, well, we saw... And there was a, there's a real setup for that to be some kind of partnership, right? Like, do I think a romantic partnership is what's hap- what's going to happen for those two? No. But a partnership that has excitement and closeness and like wanting kind of mirrors that. And I think it can create that feeling. I love that. Um, give Maddie an internship, which with whatever girl bossing Minka is doing, um, in this world. All right. You, we've talked a lot about the music and whether or not we felt like it is accurate to the show. We got a lot of responses about that. And a lot of people are talking, it's not just, this is not just Nora's issue. This is like a lot of people are like, what is going on with the music of the show? Okay. Player has an interview with the um, music supervisor, Jen Malone, who by the way, is also the music supervisor on yellow jackets, which also had incredible music and Atlanta. So like Jen Malone is extremely good at her job. Let's just say like in terms of packing in absolute, bangers for your butt totally. on the show. Uh, this is a quote from Jen uh, about the music. She says, I think there's definitely parties out there happening with teenage kids listening to Notorious B.I.G. and Juvenile. At least I'd hoped that's what's happening. She added, because if not, then we're doing one of the many things that we like to do with music, which is to have this element of discovery. But we're not picking music, quote unquote, for the kids. We're picking music to serve the story. I think the soundtrack to the show is fantastic. And I think it serves the story incredibly effectively. I too have asked around. I do think that there's a little bit of a problem with this question, which, and I say this with love, you're always going to get some people saying, no, no, we do listen to that. Who really, really want to tell you that they listen to that. Fair. I mean, listen, I'm uh, not sure that that is a purely accurate representation, but I also don't think like Rue is probably not dancing through her kitchen singing Frank Sinatra. And I would much rather she do that in the show. You know, I think the soundtrack is a plus, 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 plus to the point where it doesn't really matter if that's what it sounds like inside Rue's kitchen or at one of those parties. At this point, the show has done so much to sort of like bend reality that it can even be additionally effective in that way. Um, I'm I maybe I'm too attached to my priors here, but I just I don't think that's the soundtrack to the kids' lives. Let me let me hit you with a with a uh, a phrase that I'm saying for the first time. TikTok theory. Uh, this is my last sort of listener. One of our listeners sent me over uh, a TikTok uh, that I thought was really interesting. Um, I don't think of Euphoria as like a theory show at all. I love a theory show, but I don't think of Euphoria as a theory show. But um, the TikTok kids would beg to differ. And there are a lot of euphoria theories flying around. Um, and I, lo- I love theory culture. I think for me, it just speaks to like a love and a close reading of a show. I think it's a really totally. fun way to engage with a show. Um, as long as you don't let it get in the way of like the actual story that's being told to you, I suppose. Um, but uh, someone named Kaylee at Sad Hippie Girl on TikTok <laughs> has this theory about the Tupac and Biggie music. And she mentions that... Tupac is playing when we see 
Rue, with Rue, and then Biggie plays when Jules enters the party. Euphoria is giving us a loose, loose, loose Romeo and Juliet story um, with Rue being Romeo and Jules being Juliet. We know this, of course, because like in season one, Jules is dressed as Claire Danes as Juliet from uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Um, so this idea that like maybe in using the Tupac and the Biggie, that they're setting up a sort of a, a division, a better rivalry between these two characters this season. I don't know that's what what that's gonna that that's gonna happen, but I just I love that that's something that occurred to someone. Um, how, how do you feel about our our first TikTok theory? I love a theory. I, I I think that's I think that's great. Actually, it's funny because I thought this episode, particularly in how they um, the stuff with the play and intertwining our perception of the show with them putting on a play in um in school life with Lexi doing her, you know, talk show appearance bit. There there was some real um there were some sort of Hamlet undertones. Like there was I just I wrote down like the play is the thing at one point when I was taking notes on this episode and so I, I think the idea, I think they are totally capable of functioning on that level. And I love, I actually think it would, Euphoria has great opportunity to get into some sort of theory viewer culture and, and some inroads into the show that way. So I, I'm totally into it. Love it. Okay. So bring us all your Euphoria theories. There's another big one that has to do with, um, uh, we don't, we'll maybe get into this next week, but there's a big one that has to do with um, the family portrait, Cal and Nate's family portrait. And the fact that there's like a younger brother in that portrait that we've never seen on the show. This has, uh, the TikTok fans have lost their mind about this. So we will maybe talk about that next week. But let's talk about Cal. Let's get into the episode itself. Let's talk about this cold open. The cold open this week um, is a Cal-centric one. We're, we go all the way back to the 80s. Uh, with some incredible music, again, once again, to get this cold open. When Nora slacked me earlier this week to say that she liked this episode, my first response was, I cried. And she was like, when? And I was like, it was this cold open. It's it's a, I think it's about nine minutes, um, maybe. It's just like a short, beautiful little short film about this tragic story of Cal and his high school friend, Derek, um, who were in love with each other. And then Cal got his girlfriend pregnant, and that was the end of that. Um, I you watch this little cold open with a lot of tension and fear, or at least I did, because we know who Cal is and a bit about his sexual proclivities, but we don't know this guy, Derek. We've never met him. And so I watched it, especially like when you watch, you know, a story about a gay teen in the 80s, you know, I watched it really afraid that something would happen where Cal would be rejected by his friend or, you know, there might be violence or gay bashing or God forbid, like an HIV AIDS plot. Like this is all the stuff that we are trained to expect from like an eighties gay narrative. And that's not all what they gave us. They gave us kind of this really beautiful, tragic love story that doesn't end in like violence. It just ends in a choice. What did you think of, of the Cal story? It was really sad and beautiful to me too, especially the, the ending, um, one of the shots towards the end of the cold open where he finds out that she's pregnant and the camera just pans up and his room is, it's all greenish. It's very monotone and it's very square. And it just looks like he's like in a little cell and it really, I didn't, I cried later in this episode. I did not cry at that particular moment, but it, it still really put a lump in my throat. We've talked before about Nate on this show and sort of our confusion around like what purpose he serves or what we're supposed to really be getting from him. But I feel like is Cal what we wish Nate was in terms of like a character who exhibits toxic masculinity, but we understand the root cause of it and we have some sympathy for him or are they trying to give us something more challenging with Nate? Like, what do you, what do you think of the, the, archetypes that they're trying to roll out here or are they trying to avoid archetypes altogether it's funny i almost got i almost got the opposite in, in terms of experiencing the cold open and learning more about cal's story as something that made me see 
Nate as almost just the perpetuation of this cycle of hiding feelings and then only being able to let out that pain through like toxic anger. I thought there were so many similarities to Nate and to what we've seen Nate do and, and parts of Nate's storyline in Cal's early scenes, including when, you know, before we know who Marcy is when she's just a girl in the stands, she looks like Maddie. He drives too fast, which we've seen Nate do. Just all these things where it's sort of like, oh, the, the apple in the tree in this really sad, toxic way. One thing that I thought was fascinating, and I don't know if I'm just reading too much into this or if this is on purpose, but when he starts dating Marcy, she looks like Maddie, but she puts her feet in in his lap and up wherever she wants in the car, which is something that we've seen Cassie do driving with Nate. Uh, That made me think a lot about, is this supposed to, you know, again, I might be just reading way too much into this, but is this something that's supposed to make us think about who Nate might actually want to be with at the same time as we're contemplating whether he and his father have actually been able to explore who they truly want to be with. So I wound up coming out of that thinking a lot about the idea that Nate's circumstances have a lot more to do with his actions, which is something that I struggled with with Nate a lot just because he simultaneously had been dealt a rough hand with his with his father and was clearly reacting to things that were outside of his control. But at the same time, he was this and is this avatar of, you know, white male privilege who abuses law enforcement, who uses, you know, all of these sort of vestiges of, of power that he is inherently privileged while experiencing to hurt other people who don't enjoy that. And uh, having those two things, and maybe it's because, you know, we would think of if Cal was closeted in the 80s, I agree with you. Like there's there's the part where, you know, they're at this bar and and it's ostensibly, you know, there's only men in the bar. So I think we're assuming that they're either, you know, they're not necessarily at a gay bar, but they're somewhere that they know might be friendly. But I was scared, right? Like, it's the eighties. And these are two guys who are going to kiss each other out in public. You're worried about people doing that, right? You're worried about what's going to happen if they bring themselves forward publicly. Um, and so maybe it was the introduction of something like that, that made me see Cal and almost by proxy Nate as more vulnerable than I've seen them in the past that made me feel that way. But I didn't end up feeling like Cal is what we wish Nate would be. I wound up seeing more, you know, they are actually in some ways one and the same. I really agree with you in terms of they're showing us a psycho perpetuated and and toxic masculinity sort of like shoved downhill. Um, The way that Cal's dad treats him in the flashback, the way that the coach just casually drops, you know, gendered you know, language into the way that they're, the the boys are coached. And there is, there's just this like doomed tragic thing hanging over this whole cold open because you see Cal at a time in his life when he's so much happier, you know, that something is going to happen to him to shove him into a closet to the point where he needs to express himself sexually, like secretly and with these tapes and all of this stuff. And there's a real violence in his encounter. Um, with Jules in season one. And, uh, and so I, I, I just felt, as you say, like concerned and scared for, for Cal, a character that I would have, uh, in another show would have been a villain of the show, but the show is asking you to see all of these flawed people as extremely vulnerable people and the various shells that they put around themselves and the various toxic behaviors that they take on to protect themselves. Um, I thought I thought that that bar might be a gay bar, but like, uh, but as you say, it might just be like. Uh, I mean, I thought every guy in that bar was gay. Was my read on the whole thing? Um, at, at the very minimum, everyone in there was a man, right? So you, yeah. you have they're at least hinting at it. I thought the dance to in excess 
which starts with like two guys doing like air guitar and air drums and like ending with yeah. a kiss and the way that the kiss happens with um the like quick pullback of like fear like is this is this not what you want and then like smiling and but then crying Cal's and, the like, one who really goes for it yeah too yeah, which yeah. I think is important um so yeah so I loved it I think it's one of the best things that the show has ever done um and let's just like yeah particularly just because to, to put a fine point on it yeah it, not Cal so much because that in season one, that storyline to me just felt unfinished and like we were going to get more. But Nate was the character of all of these characters who we'd talked about, you know, does does the show's attempt to wrench some empathy out of its audience for each one of these people, no matter how bad the things that they do are, is it effective? And if there was one character where I wasn't sold, it was Nate. And I think by proxy doing this with Cal ends up making that a little bit more effective. So, That's you know, great. tip of the cap, because that was one of the things that I was not quite sold on. And gosh darn it, Sam. Well, I think it's really driven home in this in this encounter that Cal has with Fez and Ashray at the end of the episode when he goes, and again, sort of similar to... Similar to the encounter that he had in season one where you think there's going to be an altercation where everybody ends up just sort of begging for secrecy in season one. I think, you know, this obviously doesn't go the way that Cal expects or the way that we expect. Like, we're worried for Fez, but Cal's the one who's completely on the back foot uh, in all of this. And he gets brutally beaten by a child. And, uh, but I think the key moment in that scene is... Uh, when Fez says, you know, that that Nate is in love with Jules or something like that. And I think that's a huge moment for Cal, who's someone who's never understood or seen his son, to be like exactly what you're saying, Nora, to be to understand, oh no, have I trapped my son in the same spot that I felt trapped in as a teen? Have I done exactly the same damage? to him that was done to me. I thought that was really powerful. We'll see how that all plays out. But do you have any other thoughts about that Cal, Fez, Ashtray encounter? Ashtray has just seen too much in his young life. He's too <laughs> comfortable with violence. Yeah. I worry. I worry a lot. But given that the thing that had had kind of blocked my ability to feel some of that empathy for Nate was, yeah, but he's still, you know, he's still feels powerful enough to go to the police and blame someone else for attacking Maddie and, and do all of these things. Cal gets put in this position where he's threatening to do that, right? He's like, call the police, call the police. I know the police. I know the chief of police. He's going to side with me and I'm going to use the fact that, you know, I have money and status and connections and I'm going to get you in trouble. And then by, by the end, he doesn't, he can't, he just said, can I just go? That ties it that sends it home, right? He's been weakened to the point where he feels he is now unsafe inside the system. Because he has a secret that's out there, that's vulnerable. Like, you know, he he knows right. it, that that disc is out there somewhere. And so he is exposed in a way that he hasn't been. Oh my God, do I look like I'm in Oklahoma? Why would your play be set in Oklahoma? You thought I was auditioning for Oklahoma. I haven't read it. So. Are you making fun of me or did you actually think I was auditioning for Oklahoma? Why the fuck would you audition for Oklahoma? I'm not! Then why the fuck do you look like you're auditioning for Oklahoma? Do I? Yes. We have been bumping around this idea of, of Oklahoma and a musical. And I want to talk to you about the idea of a musical in this episode because that in excess sequence, you know, this show has a, a choreographer, which like not a lot of teen dramas do. But the show is a designated choreographer. It's Ryan Huffington, who's done a lot of things, including recently Tick, Tick, Boom, which is another... It's a musical that tries to give you dancing that is a little bit more integrated to the plot than some musical dancing is, if that makes any sense. And so I think the, between the in excess uh, dance that we get in Cal's Cold Open, shortly thereafter, we get this Rue dance sequence. Um in her uh, in her room leading into the kitchen, which is heavily choreographed. Then the whole episode is bouncing around this idea of Oklahoma, a musical which really had a moment a couple years ago when um, 
This is where I leave you. Uh, the film, this is where I leave you. And Watchmen both did like heavy Oklahoma interactions. And it was just like a musical that a lot of people were talking about. But it's a musical specifically that is famous for having like a dream ballet sequence. Um, so this idea of a dream ballet is something that Euphoria engages with a lot. But it's a moment in a musical where everything pauses and you have this sort of balletic expression of a thought or a wish or 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 a future vision or something like that. So I just think that the use of Oklahoma is very specific in here and I think this idea of we t- what we talk about when we talk about euphoria, we talk about euphoric expressions of something an extreme heightened version of reality, um whether that be drugs or uh maybe for Cassie this season her relationship with Nate and tying it all back in literally to the idea of the musical and how you, how characters and musicals uh, express themselves, I think is really interesting. And the last thing I want to say about like this rude dance sequence um, is it feels like another sort of lean into the unreliable narrator because we are in Rue's like musical world. And then the camera spins around and Storm Reed's character, Gia, her younger sister is there. And all of a sudden the music cuts out and we see what, Gia sees, which is her sister looking completely unhinged in the kitchen. How do you feel about it? Yes, Nora. Well, so there was something <laughs> there was something that sort of baffled and amazed me about this is because yes, we're in we are in Rue's sort of heightened semi-reality state of of euphoria fantasy world. But even though at the end of it we spin around and there's Gia and we're sort of snapped back into to real life. There's a moment where when Rue closes her door, the music gets muffled like it was playing on a boombox. That so you're in you don't know if you're in real life or not, because if the music is just playing in Rue's head, it should have no relationship to the door being open or closed. Right. But it does. So somehow it's in the house. It's Gia theoretically should be able to hear it too, if that's the case, but then she can't and we don't know. And this is another thing where there's a little part of me that's like, okay, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I sort of don't think so because I trust that the people making the show, like think about things like that. And it really threw me for a loop. Do you have anything on that, Joanna, to to calm (laughs) me down here? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think... I think we should just be prepared because I think the, doesn't the music swell again after it does that? It muffles when the door closes, but it swells again. But like then it comes back up. Yeah, yeah it comes yeah, back yeah. up. I mean, I, I think it's a fool's errand actually to try to trace down exactly what happens in Euphoria. Does that make sense? Like, I just yes, I think it's just a reminder that we don't know, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and, and the lyrics of the song. I mean, maybe one of the more on the nose songs that uh, Euphoria has ever used. Call me irresponsible. Call call me unreliable too. Like. That's, you know, that's Rue. That's that's who we're watching right here. Great stuff. Great stuff from Zendaya. I mean, Zendaya has been in musicals. Greatest Showman. Uh, if you haven't seen it, at least watch her sequences on YouTube. They're incredible. And, I mean, it makes me die to see a Zendaya full-blown musical with Tom Holland. That's all I want in the world. Anything else you want to say about this Rue kitchen scene? We, we just need to talk about how on the nose the meta magic is here because Rue literally says, now, as a beloved character that a lot of people are rooting for, I feel a certain responsibility to make good decisions and then goes on to make a bunch of bad decisions. Like, first of all, Zendaya has me in the palm of her hand whenever she does anything. Like, she's just, when she's like making out with the pillow, it is somehow peak charismatic. I'm unclear on on how that is a possible thing that a person does. But, um, it it was it was clever in an obvious way that i really really enjoy like when she goes to the slideshow of how to get away with relapsing and then she's going through the slides and there's a dick pic and she just goes oh sorry that's from last year a callback to First of all, it wasn't last year. It was 2019. Um, <laughs> but to the moment from season one where, where Rue's in, yeah. in omniscient mode going through the levels of dick pics too. Like, 
I was just cackling at that. And I'm not even fully sure what the message is other than just a reminder that they are playing with our expectations of characters being different than how people perform in real life versus the desire of, you know, a creator who's putting a lot of himself into characters in this show to put something on screen that's real and the fact that they're just going to keep messing with us. <laughs> I think that's it. There are a couple amazing layers to this. Um, the callback to season one, but instead of Jules on the projector, um, it's Elliot, right? Like that her partner in this is not Jules, it's Elliot this season, right? The the partner in drug taking. And then I think also another thing that's shaded into that is this religious theme that we've been talking about a little bit this season because she talks about people looking for hope. You know, she says, I get it. I mean, obviously this is Sam Levinson addressing critiques of the show, addressing critique of, uh, is this show too dark for the dark times that we live in? And so he does this meta slideshow where Zendaya, one of the most charming humans alive is like, I get it. You want to root for me. I do terrible things. You want a hopeful, optimistic story. This is not the story you're watching. Like, let me prepare you for the dark things that will happen on this show, because this is not, I'm not here to give you hope. I'm so sorry. In reality or in television, unfortunately, I'm not it. Yeah. But the, when she says hope, we get a bunch of religious imagery in, in the slideshow. You see people at church, right? Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. Again, I think it's just to like watch. I don't know what um, Sam Levinson's engagement with religion is for himself or his level of belief, but I think it is something that the show is really interested in, especially this season. Obviously, there's a lot of parallels between Sam writing himself into Rue. And we've had this idea that as part of you know, recovering from addiction. Ollie is told Rue, and, and we've seen all these allusions to religion, that she needs to find some sort of calling or higher power. I wondered, because we then go on to see Lexi um, realize that she wants to write this play and do this behind-the-scenes segment that's really, really funny and, and charming as well. But when Lexi does that, Lexi talks about realizing that she's an observer and she has this calling to take things from her observed life and put them into theater. And it made me wonder if now all of a sudden Sam is writing himself into Lexi and we have this sort of like higher power calling that is creating art, creating television, creating stories and the sort of transplanted identity of the creator of the show into the characters is, is a little bit fluid. I love that. No, I think we talked about it a little bit with like, perhaps he's putting, you know, because he's got Rue as his, as his clearest proxy in this quasi autobiographical story that he's telling. But we talked about how Sam Levinson, um, you know, son of Barry Levinson, a famed film director grew up with a lot of, you know, white male rich privilege, how perhaps he put, it felt like there's some confessional stuff going on with Nate. Like that's where I think a lot of that white cis hat male privilege stuff is going. And then in Rue, it's some confessional stuff around, um, you know, his, his drug seeking behavior, which he has been very open about. And I think you're hundred percent dead on the money that with Lexi. Now we have him exploring his identity as a storyteller. I think you're completely right that we could look for, especially since Sam Levinson writes every single episode. Of, like this is a very unusual for television. Usually if you have your writer's room, you have a lot of different voices in a story. This is Sam Levinson writing every single episode. This is like him. And if he puts, if he's injecting, splinters of his personality into all of these people. Um, I think that's really interesting and, and, and worth, worth watching. And I think that um, the Rue slideshow interacts with this scene where she is talking to Gia about, you know, she, the whole scheme, right. Is that sort of, if you, if you're going to relapse, you got to have a cover drug. You, you, so she tells Gia, you know, I'm just smoking a little pot. 
And then she has this whole conversation where she gaslights, uh, you know, one of the slides in slideshows gaslighting, right? She gaslights Gia by talking about like, she needs to take this or else she's going to kill herself. It's this incredibly sad moment that you're watching where you know she's, there might be some truth in it, but also she's lying. It's one of the worst, most awful thing that we've seen Rue do, I think. And it felt confessional to me. It felt like something that if he didn't do exactly that, Sam Levinson's like, I've done stuff like this. This is a thing that an addict will do. They will say anything to make sure that they can continue their habit. And I think these confession, these these confessional moments from him, whether they emerge through a Lexi or a Rue or a Nate, is what makes Euphoria as like dreamlike and heightened as it is feel so raw and personal and emotional. You know? Yeah. No. It's it's very it's really effective, and obviously, I think we'll come back to it in terms of the scene between Rue and, and Ollie at the end. Lexi knew she couldn't mount a play all on her own. So she enlisted the help of Bobby as her stage manager and partner in crime. They didn't know each other well, except that they shared a mutual disdain for Oklahoma. Bobby, you okay? The Lexi, you, you've mentioned a couple times that this is life segment, the Lexi behind the scenes. So funny, so good. So, so, so funny. Love this Ramon Apatow. And I think, and you know, in terms of tracking... The moment that reminded me a lot of the question you asked about the door closing and the and the music being muffled in Rue's room uh, is when she's walking around behind the scenes of her house, the Cassie Lexi family home, and you see the exterior set. And then you've got young Cal from the cold open is sort of asking for notes. And that is such an interesting reality-breaking detail because it's not just, oh, this cute meta joke about Lexi seeing her own life as a movie. This is the Cal cold open, which has nothing to do with Lexi's story, is injected into this behind the scenes meta moment in the episode. And I think it's just like another moment of like Sam Levinson being like, you don't, you don't, you have no idea what you're watching. You have no idea what you're watching, but at the same time, I'm paying attention to what you're saying about the thing that you have no idea what you're watching because young Cal asking for, notes. If, I mean, one of the sort of biggest, again, like that cold open responds to some critiques of the show in some ways. So having him ask for notes seems like a reflection of that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I love Lexi putting on a play. And we talked about this in episode one where Lexi was really backgrounded in season one. And, you know, they found something interesting for her to do in season two. She's got uh, a romantic interest and her own thing going. Um, and I also love there's a, there's a moment, a couple moments in this episode where storylines cross each other in the hallway. Like Lexi walks past, you know, Rue's storyline to go talk to the principal about her play. And then we circle back. It's the truth or dare, right? And we circle back to it um, again. But I, and you know, and Nate walks past, but he has nothing to do with the scene, but he just like sort of walks past. Right. And it's just sort of these these threads that are tenuously connected in the high school hallway because they all go to high school together, even though like some of these kids are actual friends. Well, and and, and Nate walking past connects with the Cassie storyline because Nate's just walking past her every morning after she's spent four hours getting ready for school. Let's, let's, let's zoom ahead and talk about this. Let's talk about what's going on with Cassie in this episode. Um, th- I want to talk Can about I this- say one thing? Yeah, Can I just course. say one thing first? Please. So Please. Uh, over the last week, Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, who is one of these sort of like it players in football right now, just on a tear, a rising star in the league, went to his postgame press conference after winning uh, in the wild card round of the playoffs, wearing pink square rimless Cartier sunglasses. They are the exact same pair of sunglasses that Cassie wears sitting by the pool with Maddie in this episode, the exact same pair. I cannot tell you my level of delight when I saw her wearing those in that scene and went, oh my God, Joe Burrow and Cassie have the same stylist. (laughs) I feel like those glasses are going to sell out for, for multiple demographics then. Um, Something I love about Cassie in this episode uh, and maybe throughout the season, I should pay more attention, but um, her, her soundtrack in this episode are things like are Brenda Lee or the Fontaines. This is a dreamy girl pop soundtrack. And I think, again, that sort of 
um, loops back to that musical sort of element to everything of Cassie's in her own movie and it's a different movie and it's got this soundtrack to it uh, because she thinks she's in a dreamy romantic film. We're watching a horror movie with Cassie, but she thinks she's in this like beautiful dreamy relationship with Nate. The morning routine montage where we see her violently scrubbing and rolling and and moisturizing and pat- I mean I think it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in terms of an engagement with um the thing that people specifically young women do to feel valuable in the world and for Cassie a, a character in search of a personality um is I I just I thought it was incredible what do you think of of the uh the get ready stuff well what's what's wild about it is it made me, I don't know, have you ever read Trick Mirror, um, Gian Tolentino's sort of essay collection? There's so much, I, I love that collection, and there's so much in it that, uh, particularly about, you know, the way that that millennial women interact with the world and the idea of sort of self-care and self-betterment having all of these toxic undertones that... Uh, are basically we've repackaged just like diet culture and toxic standards of beauty under the guise of health and wellness and, and loving yourself that are, are in some ways hard to read because there's always a part of me that's like, crap, but I really thought I liked running. You know, (laughs) I thought some of this stuff like truly makes me feel good and, and powerful and healthy and untangling that is, is hard and interesting. Right. And there's so much about what Cassie's doing where it's like, okay, uh, the level of obsession that she's putting into this is clearly not healthy. The fact that it is intended to get Nate's attention is clearly not healthy. But I believed her. I believed the show when they said that she's also getting a sense of power and control and routine out of doing this. And then it's such a punch at the end when we realize she's turning herself into Maddie. Yeah. She goes to school and realizes that she's dressed and, you know, done up exactly like Maddie. And so it has nothing to do with, you know, her own empowerment or or finding an identity or a personality in, in that kind of control and routine because she's just becoming her friend who has the thing that she wants, which is Nate. Well, so I mean, is like she's a character in search of identity, and yeah, exactly. She's not finding it here. She found she's, she she's her pasted, the identity that she wants is Nate's girlfriend. Yes, uh, so she's pasted someone else's identity on top of herself. I want to shout out two things. First of all, Sydney Sweeney's incredible performance during Cassie's like bathroom freak fantasy freakout, talking about how happy she is while sobbing, amazing. And then also Alexa Demi plays Maddie's uh, reaction to seeing Cassie in the hallway dressed identically to her where she's like, I, I, I love these women. I love these actresses. I love them I love so these much. Performances. <laughs> so good. But I think something that we had brought up earlier um, this season that I think the show is really leaning into are the addiction parallels between Rue and Cassie, this obsessive pattern of behavior for Cassie or whatever it is that Cassie's looking for here as its own pattern of addiction the same way that Rue's drug-seeking behavior is. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I, I can't think of another show that is quite dug into a teenage girl's seeking validation, seeking worth uh, in the world through exactly a storyline like that. Wait, I don't understand. If you're not auditioning for Oklahoma, then why do you look like that? Like what? Like a country music star. In a good way or a bad way. Bitch, you better be joking. Jules Elliott and Rue, the sexuality interrogation, the interrogation scene. Uh, I love this. We already talked about how much we liked the character of Elliott. It's, It's hard to introduce a season two character and have us like them. It's especially hard when you introduce them as a sort of potential spoiler to a relationship we're invested in. But I think introducing Elliott into this dynamic has worked incredibly well. And I really like the, you know, something that we talked about at the beginning of the season is the way in which the show maybe want to lean even more into picking apart the ideas of Jules' queer identity, 
So Elliot pointing out like you're a trans girl wearing a binder, Joel saying things like gender, fuck me, please. All the stuff like that is, um, is a layer deeper into queerness and, and Elliot sort of, are you gay? Kinda. That's a very Gen Z response, I think. Uh, yeah. And he was, he's basically accusing her of being, when he says you're a nun, everyone's a nun. Uh, you know, just the way that you think about gender and identity, you're, you're trapped in a binary and I'm living outside the binary. And I think it's so great to like have a character come in and look at someone like Jules and be like, you're so square, you know? And you're like, I I also thought it was really smart to just give Jules and Elliot an opportunity to play off of each other without Mm -hmm. the, the sort of, you know, Rue has a gravity, um, I don't mean like a seriousness. I mean like a gravitational pull when she's in the room. Removing that, I think, helps a lot with that sort of injecting season two character to create a love triangle problem because watching them work off of each other was really, really interesting and I think makes Elliot like a part of the world instead of just a a sort of interloper. And I think this introduction of Rue and a potential... Asexual identity, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't think neither I nor the show is ready to make that judgment, but I think it's an interesting introduction because as much as we saw Rue's obsession and fascination with Jules, it is so much more of a romantic, again, almost sort of like throwback square old-fashioned Romeo and Juliet, what light through yonder window breaks idea of Jules and less of a a teen hormonal sexualized idea of Jules. And I think that that's a really keen observation that the show is making. And I'm curious to see where it goes. But like we see, you know, in in Rue's Frank Sinatra pillow dance, we see her like make out with the pillow with, I swear, more like, sexual curiosity uh then then we've seen her usually make out with Jules. We see a little bit more in this episode, but I don't know what do you think of what they're doing there? Yeah, I, I think the way that I've always interpreted that with Rue is just she's got a lot going on before you introduce the challenge for any high school student of figuring out their identity and and their way of operating as a sexual being. So it's, it's almost like I always assumed Rue just kind of hadn't gotten there yet. Um, but it makes sense that they would be sort of questioning that and thinking about it particularly because for Jules, Jules almost can't avoid that, right? Because Jules's journey has so much to do with sexuality and, and figuring out, you know, how her identity relates to that. Um, that she sort of had to go there and, and Rue has not necessarily, but it's, it's an interesting facet of the relationship because it also establishes something that Jules and Elliot share that Rue is on the outside of. Yeah. And all of a sudden the, the formula feels a little switched in this episode, especially when Elliot is telling Jules all these nice things about herself. Uh, and you know, I think a lot of us expected when Elliot came in that it would be like an Elliot and Rue tension and Jules on the outside of it. And all of a sudden it feels like it's like a true triangle. True. A lot yeah. of like love triangles are really love A-frames. Mm. Love a love A-frame. All right, let's talk about Rue's big plan. So in episode one, Rue tells us that she's got to change when it comes to female drug dealers. And here she is putting on her mom's uh, best uh, business casual suit and going in and making a case for herself why she should be a drug de- a female drug dealer to Lori. This is where we find out that Rue is either lying about or actually has a very high GPA, I think probably lying. But but my question is, okay, I just want to ask you really quickly as a thought experiment. Of the characters that we've met who go to this high school that are in this inner circle, who do you think actually does have a really high GPA? Like who is secretly a great student in this group of teens? The real answer is no one. No one has gone to class. Everyone is like going through deep turmoil at, at, at every opportunity. I, I guess I would say one of Maddie and Cassie, I go back and I would go back and forth on, on who I really think it is. But one of those girls is sort of type A enough that they there would be a need to achieve. I would almost want to go with Maddie. I think it's Maddie. But we got so much from her that was like, Maddie just doesn't want to do anything. 
She just does not have ambition. She does not have goals. Maybe that's not something that we're supposed to believe necessarily. But I, I do think that Maddie could just secretly like have absolutely no issue with school, not be challenged by it whatsoever and have a mind that's so sharp and quick that she's just got it on lock. It's dangerous to invoke uh, a Joss Whedon show in the year of our Lord 2022, but I will say that um, one moment of Buffy Vampire Slayer, one of my favorite shows growing up, uh, is when Cordelia Chase scores really high on the SATs and everyone is surprised and she goes, what, I can have layers? Like, I test well. (laughs) I feel like Maddie will score really Incredible. high on the SATs. Um, and Le- I mean, Lexi is probably pulling down and straight Ethan. A's. Yeah, and Ethan. Um, Lori, genuinely terrifying. This is, to be clear, a terrible idea. Whatever Rue's doing, terrible idea. I believe the term is is girl bossing a little too close to the sun. <laughs> As the kids say. So uh, so we're terrified for Rue. Uh, Laurie is threatened her from the depths of her incredibly complex massage chair. So um, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little worried for what's going on here. But it all culminates in this really, really, really painful scene between Zendaya and Coleman Domingo as Ali. Ali. Um, we saw their... Like, their dynamic has been so incredible throughout. They held down an entire special episode together. But this stairway sequence is one of the, you know, it it refers back to that special, um, the diner conversation, where Ali, like, confesses that he, you know, he came from abuse. He passed that abuse down, sort of like what we were talking about with Cal and Nate. And she throws that back in his face in one of the most vicious things I've ever seen. And the registry, like, the way that the hurt registers on Coleman Domingo's face is, you know, sort of made me actually audibly gasp. This was what got me emotional in this episode. It's just so sad. It's It just, you know, it, he wants to help Rue so badly. And up to this point, we'd never seen her, we'd seen her sort of ignore it, but we'd never seen her reject it. And she'd set it up earlier in the episode by saying, it's not me. I'm not going to be the the good example, happy ending that you're looking for. And this, you know, really proves that. And it was an incredible performance that really, really affected me. Religion, of course, comes back into the mix here um, where she says, uh, I'd be better if I believed in God or Allah or whatever. And then, yeah, in my notes, I wrote, Rue torches the Ali bridge. I mean, I don't know if this is the end of their relationship um, because I don't think the show would want to let Coleman Domingo go. But if I were him, I might be done, at least for a time well, with her. Also, um, while this is happening, she is holding a suitcase that he hasn't seen for himself, but has correctly guessed is stuffed with drugs. $10,000 worth of drugs. Uh, that was actually one of my favorite girl boss moments for for her when Lori offers her $50,000 and she's like, oh no, <laughs> like, no, 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 too much. And well, she's like, 10000 Yeah, and she's like, good for me. Such restraint. $10,000 worth of drugs, all kinds of drugs in there. Um, and also like uh, this idea of religion, it, religious imagery, um, the episode ends with her, you know, taking a tab of something and um, the, the communion sort of imagery on that, I think is something to look out for that I think is, right. is an interesting aspect. That's of the a great taking. point. Last thing I want to talk about is sort of this idea of ebb and flow characters. It's something you asked at the beginning of the season is like, is this still an ensemble show or is this just the Jules and Rue show at this point? And I think it very much is still an ensemble show, but I think what we're seeing on Euphoria is perhaps with this very talented cast of characters, storylines are going to ebb and flow. So Lexi, who was in the back burner last season, comes to the fore this season. And I think it's fair to say, and we got actually a couple messages about this, um, that Kat is a character who at least not, we haven't yet really seen um, how the show is interested in in weaving her story into the main narrative. Um, like, you know, we see her meet Ethan's parents. It goes disastrously. That's a story, but it doesn't really feel connected. Ethan at least seems like he's going to be looped into Lexi's whole plague. We see him in the audition line. Like, that's a way for him back into the central story. Um, and then McKay, who showed up at the party, but like, isn't dating Cassie and goes to college. So is no reason to be part of that. Like, I don't even know if he's 
meaningfully on the show this season. So it's an ensemble, maybe an ensemble that doesn't feel like it needs to find room for every single character all the time. What do you think? So McKay disappearing does not, is not a problem for me. In some ways, it reinforces the idea that like Cassie is not addicted to Nate, she's addicted to love or to being loved. It it actually makes a lot of sense to me that a character like that would have had a boyfriend who at one point she felt like all this sort of obsessive drama about and then he just disappears. Um, and it's like she never thinks about him again. Uh, yeah, Kat feels backburnered right now. I, I will say I've been really... I wanted this to continue to be an ensemble show. I feel like it has. And I feel like that's been very satisfying to me. Kat does feel backburnered right now, but I hope that she comes back around. And, and I, I would say so far, I would trust them to do that. The way in which I mentioned, like shouted out Cassie's storyline being and like, I thought that Kat's storyline was part of what really set Euphoria apart in the first season in terms of what it was examining in terms of the power of women who look the way the cat looks and all of that, I thought was something that a lot of people connected to with the show. So it would be a shame for her to be backburnered. Cat also, she she's had one of the most, I think, iconic scenes from season two so far with the screaming influencers. So she hasn't had a ton of minutes, but she's made the most of them. And the show has made the most of them for her. The episode closes out speaking of music as we have all throughout with a brand new fresh Lana Del Rey track never before heard anywhere else debuting in the closing credits of a of an episode of Euphoria. Real peach pit after dark on 90210 uh, feeling or the OC would do this all the time as well. I don't know much about this track because we're recording this a little early and I'm sure there will be some great article up on rollingstone.com or Vulture or something like that about... Um, the how they got Lana to do this and premiere a track, but uh, you know it's a beautiful song, and Lana feels like a perfect fit for this show. Any any Lana Del Rey thoughts or feelings from you, Nora Franciati? Yeah, perfect choice. Just just perfect choice. Lana Del Rey has euphoria vibes. Yeah. Has like total euphoria vibes. The sort of you know chemtrails over the country club stuff is so fitting. All right, so let's do a quick fire wrap up before we go. Uh, starting with the needle drop, I will go first and say I genuinely cannot choose between the NXS song, which I will never hear the same. Like, that's a song I love and already know, but I will never not think of the opening of this episode of Euphoria or the Selena track playing quietly in the background of Maddie and Cassie poolside because Maddie's look is so exactly ripped from Selena. I really liked that use of Selena in the episode. How about you? What's your needle drop moment? So I, I think it's Rue singing just because I'm going to have the same experience where literally Frank Sinatra, I can no longer hear without picturing Zendaya doing drugs and like amazingly charismatically making out with a pillow, which I think is really saying something. <laughs> Um, all right, the Maddie Perez honorary fit check. I think it has to go to Cassie for her incredible Maddie impersonation. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm giving it to Joe Burrow for the for the shades for preempting <laughs> Cassie. <laughs> Who's most need in need of a hug in this episode? Oh, Ali and Gia. Oh my God. Those are really good choices. I'm gonna pick Cassie because like I am I'm really scared for what's going on with this girl. This Cassie season. needs like a water, <laughs> a good night's sleep, <laughs> a nap. Um, the acceptable slash terrifying slash horrifying moment for you. So a real first in that it was, um, this is like the first time that, that to me, it's not uh, sort of explicitly violent or um, explicit in, in other ways seen the just emotional uh, hit of the scene between Rue and Ali. I mean, totally necessary and an incredible scene, but amazing that for the first time, euphoria affected me more in my feelings than just in my sort of sensibilities and needing to, to cover my eyes. I did uh, cover yeah. my eyes when Ashtray was, was um, bashing Cal's head in, but. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it to the the foley sound of the blood on Cal's face. There's a point when he's sort of like wiping the blood out of his eyes and there's just like a real yeah. solid squish 
uh, yes. that happened. That yeah, um, not fun. Yeah, did not like it. Uh, favorite flashy camera move slash shot. So I thought the the cinematography in the cold open was immaculate. And we talked about the pan up when Cal is in his room. But also there's the scene where um, he and Derek are with their girlfriends and they jump in the pool. And there is, um, you know, you see like the f- the girls are on their shoulders and you see like the female bodies above the surface of the water and then underneath are the guys. And it's a little on the nose, but... I, I actually love that euphoria is not above an explicit metaphor. And I thought that was incredible. Um, I'm going to give it to the interrogation scene of Elliot, because I'm pretty sure that's like one of those things where they actually used a desk lamp to light that light him. You know what I mean? And, uh, and what I loved, they never really explain it, but Jules is holding the lamp like really close to her and she has gloves on because I have to imagine that lamp is really hot. So they put gloves on her, but I'm like, where did the, did she have, was she wearing the gloves those day? Like she put (laughs) them on to hold a desk lamp. I don't know, but I, I, I loved that. Um, all right. Last but not least, who would we actually want to party with on euphoria this week? Nora Princiani, who are you partying with? I would go to the, uh, post premiere party for Lexi's show, but not Oklahoma. Fuck Oklahoma. Um, I would go hang out with Maddie poolside at her babysitting gig. Seems like a, a great time. That kid seems pretty chill. Um, yeah. So go visit Maddie while she's babysitting. Uh, and hang out at the pool. All right, that's it for us this week. We'll be back uh, next week. We'll have a special guest uh, on the show next week as well. Please, again, uh, send us any questions or comments on Twitter, on Instagram, DM. I'm at Joe Wrote This on both spots, so uh, you can find me there. Uh, Nora, where can folks find you? At Nora Princiati, Twitter and Instagram. Um, Smoke Signals, Pigeon Carrier. Great. Um, The streets of New York. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.